What's most important at the end of the day in all of these discussions is that if you get a serious disease, and bias is a serious disease in science, it doesn't necessarily matter how you caught that disease, what matters is the cure. So for, the way I tend to look at this is registered reports are part of a cure for what ails us. And if some scientists um, are engaged in deliberately biased practices and others are engaged in unconscious bias, you know, I can say la vie. My, my, my issue here is fixing the problem. Hello and welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo and I'm here with my co-host James Heathers from Northeastern University. And for this episode, we're joined by a very special guest, Chris Chambers, who is a professor of cognitive neuroscience at Cardiff University, author of the book, The Seven Deadly Sins of Psychology, and our very first Australian guest, which is about bloody time. Welcome to the show, Chris. Yes, thank you. Thank you. I'm honored to be the first Aussie. Honored. Truly honored. We it's are, it's we been too starting. long. You've had this show for too long not to have an Aussie on board. I know. We're, this is episode 56 and we've got our first uh, first Aussie guest. That's frankly it's, quite it's, disgraceful. It's, I, I it's terrible. It's, it's almost as if science is one of those international enterprises where pricks come from everywhere. Or it, <laughs> <laughs> It's almost as if there's no good Aussies in science. Basically what you're saying, you've had 56 episodes and not a single Aussie. I mean, on your end, obviously, but yeah, come on, come on, shape up. We have ah, to. We have to get on. Well, he raises a good point. Now, Chris, I, I recently read your Seven Deadly Sins book, and what really struck me while reading it was uh, how much of a state of disrepair we've let psychological science fall into. Uh, it, was a, it was a little bit depressing reading in some respects, but then rather than just summarizing all the problems surrounding reproducibility and uh, uh, transparency in research, you also offer... Uh, great hope and optimism for the future of psychological science through proposed reforms, primarily through the vehicle of registered reports. Can you explain to the listeners what registered reports are and how this all got started? Sure. So <clears throat> registered reports change the way publishing works. So for those who, who are listening to this who aren't familiar with the way um, it typically works when you do science and you publish it, normally you design your study... You collect your data, you analyze your data, you write your paper, you put the glossiest sheen possible on that. You, Charlie Sheen. Yep, yep, exactly. It's shiny, it's ready to go. You send it off to a journal where um, a lot of the time an editor looks at it and goes, no, nope, this is crap, reject, without even sending it to anyone else. But if you get past that stage, you go to the reviewers who then um, give it a thorough going over. They look at your, your rationale, your methods, your results your conclusions, and if you, if you pass this kind of trial by fire, you get your paper published, right? So th this is, the, this is the, um, the traditional model of scientific publishing, which has been around since the 17th century, since the Royal Society basically invented publishing. But there's a big problem with this type of publishing, which is that when reviewers, which are fellow scientists, look at your paper and they assess its merit and they decide whether it's high enough quality to be published in that particular journal, they're not just assessing the importance of the research question or the rigor and the robustness of the method you're using. They're also looking at your results. And this introduces a, an enormous temptation toward bias, toward saying that some results um, are more publishable than others, some results are more exciting. Some, you, know, you could have two studies, both of which are equivalent in their importance and their rigor in terms of method, but one gets a certain kind of result, like amazing results, and one doesn't. When reviewers assess papers based on results, then what happens is, of course, they select the results they like. We're human beings. What registered reports do is break this process of, of peer review down into two stages. First of all, to get your paper accepted in the journal, the reviewers assess the importance of the question the theory, the methodology, all of the front end. This is all the stuff under the bonnet, right? When you're, doing, when you're doing science, this is the stuff that really matters. This is what gets you from A to B. They assess that first. And if that passes muster, then the journal accepts your paper, regardless of what your results may be in the end. 
Okay, so the results should be in the lap of the gods. The results are not something that we as scientists should have direct control over or feel pressured to manipulate to go in a certain direction. So the idea of a registered report is that you, you create an environment in which the peer review process reflects quality. Quality assessed at that first stage, you get your prov provisional acceptance, you go away and do your study, and then you come back with your results and your interpretation. It goes through a light peer review at that time to just confirm that you as a, as a scientist did what you said you would, that the quality checks that you built in were passed and so on and so forth, and then it's published. So the idea here is to eliminate from, um, from science a powerful kind of bias, which we call confirmation bias, which is this idea that, that, um, that certain information that agrees with our prior expectations is weighted more than, than other information. So the idea here is to, is to eliminate the pressure to get certain kinds of results and to basically clean up publishing. Well, if that isn't a threat to scientific enterprise in general, I don't know what is. Well, it's funny because people call it radical. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. It, I know that's a, that's a very rambling. I, it's a very rambling. No, that wasn't. That was. That wasn't. Support. That wasn't rambling. It's just long. Wait till about forty minutes. I'll show you how rambling works. We, 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 just, we just we just haven't got there yet. Um, the 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 first point I'd immediately make about that is that you've just framed that in terms of bias. You haven't said anyone is fully shit. Everyone is trying to manipulate their results. The huge sucking vortex at the center of this issue is the fact that people are reading papers they review and doing analysis with an expectation of how it works. And it's super powerful, it's completely unconscious, and it's generally unavoidable. Right. I mean, this is, and that basically is a definition of bias. So bias is, it, 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 it's a good word because it captures a number of things. It captures the unconscious element that we all as humans suffer from because, you know, when I'm doing a, when I'm doing a study, I've got a grant for 100,000 pounds and I know I need to produce some output from it. There's an enormous pressure on me to get a certain kind of result, which will, which will enable me to publish in a top journal, which will support my career, the career of my juniors, and so on and so forth. There's an enormous unconscious weight on my shoulders, even if I try to be the best scientist I can. Um, but bias is good for another reason. It's, it's an important word for another reason, which is it captures all the bullshit as well, all the, all the deliberate strategy and all of the... All of the game playing that is so typical, I think, in science these days that we, we see particularly from senior academics who have played the game for a long time and know how to win. That's why they're senior academics. And it's a good word because it catches that whole range of behavior um, without necessarily blaming anyone. But you know what's most important at the end of the day in all of these discussions is that if you get a serious disease, and bias is a serious disease in science, it doesn't necessarily matter how you caught that disease. What matters is the cure. So for, the way I tend to look at this is registered reports are part of a cure for what ails us. And if some scientists um, are engaged in deliberately biased practices and others are, are engaged in unconscious bias, you know, I can say la vie. My, my, my issue here is fixing the problem. Yeah. Now, one of the things that I quite like about this is a lot of people have proposed a lot of reforms in different areas of science. Um, we've got all these debates when it comes to changing the, uh, the significance of the p-value, for instance. Should it be should it be changed to 0 0.005? Um, but of course, there's a lot of debate here. But when it comes to registered reports, it's just to at least to me and to a lot of people, it's just so clear that I mean, this is the way that we should be doing science anyway. If we were to, if we just discovered the whole scientific enterprise right now, this is exactly how we would be doing it. Yet there, see, there still seems to be a lot of objections to to this very idea. What are some of the common objections that you do find yourself when it comes to registered reports? Well, it's interesting because if you talk to anyone on the street, I often I fly a lot, so I often find myself sitting next to people and we just start talking and they ask what I do and one thing goes to another and eventually we're talking about this. And it's interesting because whoever I talk to and they can be in all walks of life, they can be even scientists a lot of the time, um, and they all agree this is just common sense, right? If we want to understand reality and we want to build a knowledge base that means something and we can use and apply and whatnot, then there is no reason to, to hobble ourselves by only publishing part of the truth. Why should, why should the results of a study really ever be a factor in determining whether that, that study gets published? 
Now that 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 is common sense, but unfortunately, you know, one of the lessons you learn, I think, as a scientist as you go through this job, is that common sense isn't the name of the game. Common sense is what you go in with as when you're 20. Common sense is, yeah, cool. I, I I'm doing a PhD. I'm going to discover something new and exciting about the world, and everyone's going to love it. And then you discover that um, that is the way you were taught, but it's not the way it really works. That the game, the game is about impact, and the game is about winning, and the game, the game is super competitive, and some results mean more than others. And those who get lots and lots of great results end up getting big careers. They get famous, and so on. Your question yeah, was, I'm... what are the major objections? Well, there are, there are, you know, this is changing the way science works. If you're a researcher, and you know, I'm finding this out in my own lab because my students and staff are now pursuing registered reports with vigor. It changes your workflow quite substantially. You invest a lot more time into the front end of your science. You know, the, the typical way, at least in psychology and cognitive neuroscience, that, that things work is you come up with an idea that you think is pretty cool. You read a lot of papers. You come up with a cool method and then you you realize you spend a lot of time thinking and you have to start doing pretty fucking quick so off you go in the lab you're pushing you're, you're cranking the handle as fast as possible and you realize at the end of it all you didn't there's one thing you didn't actually think about at all and that's how the hell am i going to analyze my data and what did i really think <laughs> i was going to find and then when you get your data at the end of it you realize oh, okay um i didn't really think this through but i'm going to analyze my data just like I'll do this analysis off the top of my head and usually that doesn't show anything particularly amazing so you look again and you try this and that and the other the and in by the end of that process you've you've figured out what your hypothesis was going in right so you've figured out you've reinvented history you've got a time machine you've gone back in time and you've you've designed your study at the very end this is the way it typically works now if you go through your training as a scientist doing this day in day out for years and years and years as i did and so many of my colleagues have done um it teaches you that that's that's what works and registered reports is not only a solution to the bias that, that scenario creates but it's also a very um stark warning about the but about that bias it shows you what's wrong with the way you're doing things and this produces an emotional response in people so they look at it and they go whoa even the fact that this is even an option tells me that something's pretty wrong about the way science works the fact that we even need this at a journal i mean why the fuck should we even need this you know i talk to a physicist or a chemist and they say to me wow you guys need this you actually need to have a review process which is blind to results and I'm like, yeah, unfortunately we do. And this is threatening to people. So you, you, all these objections, I get loads of them, you know, loads of objections. You know, it's going to hamper exploratory science. Um, it's going to give reviewers too much power to censor ideas they don't like. Um, we've gone through all of these arguments for years and years now. And I, I think we, we, are, we have, and I think from the very beginning, we have, we have won because I think it is common sense. But, you know, this is a tough argument to win. Those are not very good counter arguments. Um, it's going to let reviewers censor ideas they don't like. What the fuck do they think happens <laughs> when it <laughs> when it when it turns up and they don't like it? You, know, I've I've got some marvelous marvelous reviews from things that I've written where it, it, the, the idea that that's going to be a more sort of mendacious control process than anything else is that's that's nuts it's also the other thing is it's prospective you've designed it beforehand you haven't actually invested because a lot of the time in in a, a lot of areas the expensive difficult part the the one where you actually have to physically go and do the thing you have to pay for scans hook your equipment up spend money on electrodes pay your ras etc etc that's the actual doing of it the idea is that it's worse because you've shot it down before you spent all the money. It's fucking goofy. That's a terrible. That's a terrible objection. Also, you know, and what what was what was that, what was that other one? Uh, registered reports are going to stop exploratory research. Yeah, if they're mandated by fiat, if a, if a central government comes in and makes everyone do them on on point of stabbing. <laughs> Well, what this the is fuck it. Do they yeah, yeah. It's the, the, the scientists love the slippery slope fallacy. You know, anytime yeah. you in introduce any kind of any kind of reform, academia is one of the most stuffy conservative sectors of society. To be honest, anytime you introduce any kind of reform to anything, 
whether it's a whether it's registered reports or it's you know a new kind of form for claiming expenses you'll get a host of <laughs> objections back about how if this was mandatory it would create this incentive to do that and so on and it's all predicated on the assumption that what we have at the moment was somehow selected for being the most optimal possible way of doing everything when in fact it's a big massive accident it's like a london street map you know, it's, 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 it evolved over time by, by people walking in certain directions and someone said, hey, yeah, let's knock down that wall so we can walk from there to there more easily. And over time, you get a, you get a, you get a system of a way of doing things. But, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of the time, a lot of the objections that I hear to registered reports are really um, objections that you could throw at peer review in general or science in general or, or um, uh, hypothesis testing in general. Um, and they're Sounds not like actually it, yeah. about this particular innovation, which is the idea is to actually solve certain other problems. Now, Chris, you mentioned before that you've been uh, integrating registered reports within your own lab with your students, with your PhD students and your postdocs. How do you go about uh, implementing this, particularly considering that a lot of PhD students have time pressure when it comes to their publications and registered reports um, w- while improving the quality of science, obviously, can actually take a bit of extra time. How do you actually account for that with your students? So the answer there is to start early, right? So a registered report might feel like it takes more time because you're preparing things carefully and you're going through a stage one peer review process. This is the peer review of the protocol before the results are collected. And that can take two or three months to go through that process. And so, you know, you can feel, I suppose, you know, if all you were doing was registered reports, you could feel like you were sitting on your hands during that time. And the reality, of course, is that students have a lot of other things to be doing during that time. But you save time at the end as well, because you don't have to go through this process of jumping from one journal to the next because reviewers don't like your non-significant results. You don't have to analyze your data six ways from Sunday in order to find a significant result to get it into a journal in the first place. There's a lot of, there's a lot of crap removed from, from the process which saves you time. It's just that it saves you time at a later point in time. So it, fe- it can yeah, feel the it's idea- It's sort of front-loaded. Front exactly, it's front-loaded. So the idea can feel like, whoa, I need ages to do this. But in reality, and Dorothy Bishop has written a really nice blog post on her, on her blog about this, is that it provides an awful lot more predictability about your timeline. And this is very valuable as a yeah. student. You know, you want to come at the end, you want to get to the end of your PhD and you want to be able to show what you've done. If you do a traditional PhD, there's a decent chance that most of your work won't have been published yet by the end. And so when it comes to showing what you've done, you have to fall back on the approach of in preparation papers on your CV, which I can tell you as a PI, we basically ignore those ones because we know they don't exist. <laughs> we know their ideas coming to fruition at some point. With a registered report, if you, if you go through this process early on, um, within you know, the first year or two of your PhD, then by the time you get to the end of your PhD, you probably have them published because that stage two review process, that process that occurs after results are in is quick and simple. So you're, you're more likely to have that paper published by the time you finish. And even if you don't, you've got an in principle accepted article at a journal, which is a hell of a lot more than an in prep paper at a, you know, for a typical kind of article. So for a student, and there are a lot of advantages to doing this, and, and it's no accident and it's no surprise that most of our submissions for registered reports come from graduate students and from early career postdocs. They know this, right? While you've got all these senior researchers harping on about these problems, the students and the early career postdocs are the ones who actually listen to what we're saying. They're the ones that realize this is in their interest and they're doing it. Man, everyone, everyone says that about uh, anyone, anyone who works in methodology. I heard that so many times. Oh, we, we did a, uh, I, I, I mentioned yesterday that um, we generally don't publish re- uh, replications. Oh, my students were all fucking horrified. They were, they were all bleeding from both eyes and screaming. Why, why in the name of hell do we not do that? Um, it's, there's, there's definitely a generational divide with the understanding of methodological problems in general and the kind of buy-in for a process by which to fix them. Oh, totally. Yeah. The, uh, and the, the, more I, the, the more I, the deeper I go into this, this issue of open science and reproducibility, the more that generation gap really sticks out. I mean, it, it, I, I gave a talk um, in September of last year in Switzerland 
where at the very end, an old professor stood up and he said to me, you are destroying science. Awesome. <laughs> I want to destroy science. Like, that's not, not an exaggeration. That's a really terrible accent, but that's exactly what he said to me. And then wow. he launched into this big, it was kind of, it was interesting. I was a bit embarrassed to be honest, standing there and being told I was destroying science. There's this audience of about a hundred people. And um, it was, it was kind of odd. Uh, it felt like I was at the world's worst job interview, but he, um, he, <laughs> he, he went on this big diatribe of, of how um, requiring researchers to, to, well, not requiring, but offering them a format where they had to pre-specify what they say they would do and then do it w would limit the, the science in such a profound way that it would be the end of all discovery. Um, and he was unchallenged by anyone in the audience. Um, the students obviously didn't dare challenge him because I think he was like the top guy there or whatever. But the, the other senior academics didn't either. Um, afterward, of course, you know, I heard that there were, there was, there were more that you were interested in the idea. But th that was the voice that, that resonates in my mind as I walked away from that event. And, I, and the, I've never had that reaction from anyone who's under the age of 40. You know, it's, there's this kind of there's this there's this kind of idea amongst older academics that science is fine, thank you, and the proof that it's fine is that I have a job. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I've I've i I wrote that in uh, less polite terms. I wish I could remember where I'd written that down. Oh man, so you. <laughs> <laughs> the upshot of all that is the kids are all right, I suppose. The kids are all right. I think the kids are all right in many ways. I think the kids have a better understanding of of these issues. And the kids aren't corrupted by the incentive structures in science. You know, they're not they're not the ones, you know, chasing chasing high impact papers because they need to renew their grant in, in a year and a half. They're not the ones pushing for promotion in a tenure track system that is designed to kick out nine out of ten. And they're they're not the ones pressured by their department heads to publish four-star papers for the ref. There, there's, you know, the, I think when you're an early career researcher, you're a bit cursed and you're a bit blessed. You're, you're cursed because you don't have a, any kind of permanence or stability to your job, but you're blessed because you're uncorrupted by all of, all of these pernicious um, realities uh, of, of academia. And I think that voice, that intelligent, um, articulate, um, discovery-oriented, approach is something that we lose as we sp the longer we spend in this job we lose it and i lost it which is why i wrote that book because i realized i'd lost it and i wanted to get it back damn um i've tried to to sum this up before and i it's a phrase that recurs through a, a ton of sh shit that i guess that i've done that fits i hope well enough with this is that the the further the longer you stay in science the more you confuse producing scholarship with producing knowledge and when your when your focus is the outcome then everything that is supposed to be behind the outcome is secondary to getting there and when chris says incentive structure that's that's how i would interpret it and it is the it is the the font from doth which much bullshit springs. Indeed. Sorry, I'm no. underslept. <laughs> that well, you know, that's that's exactly right. That is uh, the uh, outcome-based rewards work in some careers. If you're in sales, great. The more you sell, the more you make. If it, mm. and they work, you know, in certain capitalist structures, they work fine. Science doesn't work like that. Science is about advancing knowledge. It's not about getting certain kinds of results. And, and I remember back in 2013 when we first launched Registered Reports, I wrote this little blog post, which I think three people read uh, on my personal blog, which said this was um, scientific publishing as it was originally intended to be. Because I put myself back in time, back in the Royal Society in 16, whatever it was, and I'm imagining the kind of papers that I would want to be creating at that time and what they were trying to create. They were trying to create a way of transmitting knowledge. They weren't trying to create a ridiculous impact factor based incentive structure. It's got, it's totally fucked up. It's, it's got mm. from that, from that beginning to now, it's almost unrecognizable. And so what we're, what we're trying to do here is, is to, is to apply a course correction on a ship that is in the wrong ocean. 
you know we, we're trying to steer it back it's going to take time but you know we have to we have to push at this we have to be relentless yeah and don't worry about it if anyone says you're rude yeah indeed <laughs> i don't care about that stuff yeah i don't care about that stuff uh, i was just saying i was just saying before to dan how i was not going to annoy you by bringing it up <laughs> so we we don't we don't need to talk about it anymore um well, it's going to, uh, you know, I, okay. what I will say about that is that that debate is going to continue to come up for as long as replication and reproducibility threatens um, the corporate agendas of certain people. And I think uh, this is just politics 101. You know, we are, my, my eye and the eye of many of my colleagues and friends is focused on improving the way science is done. Those for whom that is threatening will argue about tone and they'll argue about civility and they'll argue about bullshit that really is simply a distraction from the goal. And the idea of all of that is to just derail things. But you have to realize what it is. You have, the minute you see it for what it is, it all melts away and it doesn't matter anymore. Oh, it sounds like a spa. I like that. Um, we're going to take a break so I can get a glass of water and then we will probably carry on like pork chops. If this is your first or 51st episode, we're glad you're listening to Everything Hurts. Many people ask how they can support the show, and the best way that you can do this is by sharing links to the show on social media or by leaving a review on iTunes. Or you can do both. A special shout out to Pepe Isaged, who tweeted that he's completed the entire back catalogue of Everything Hurts. That is commitment. Thanks also to the Dorset Science and Tech Center, Dr. PMS, Nick Janoush, and Kimberly Queen, among many others, for tweeting out their support for the show. People are also adding us to lists of must-listen-to podcasts, and it's quite humbling to be in the company of these other recommendations. Speaking of other podcast recommendations, I've just finished a series of my other podcast called The Startup Scientist, and this series is on taking a paper from idea to publication and beyond. These are seven minicast episodes that are 10 minutes each, so you can get through them in no time. So check it out. We'll leave a link in the show notes. Remember, you can find us on Twitter. The show is at Hertz Podcast. I'm DS Quintana. James is James Heathers. And our guest today, Chris Chambers, is Chris DC77. Now back to the show. You often find yourself when you are working in a PhD under someone's immediate supervision or working in a postdoc under someone's really immediate supervision that publishing decisions are not all about you. It might be your paper. It might be something that you write. A lot of the time you're the first author, but your ability to strategize is limited with limited by whoever else you're publishing the paper with. Mm. If you're an ECR, how do you how do you talk a sixty five year old full professor into doing one of these? This is the question. This is, in my opinion, we've beat all of the other issues about hampering exploration and and changing the workflow of science. That we've dealt with all those issues. This is the one big issue remaining because it's a person question. How do you change the behaviour of senior people in the field to to actually embrace this? And without doubt. And it happens every time I give a talk on registered reports, and I've given how many dozens of these over the last few years, I always get at least one person coming up to me, one early career researcher coming up to me after the talk saying, I'd really like to do this, it sounds really cool, but I can't. And the reason I can't is that my principal investigator or my boss, my supervisor, only publishes results which agree with their theory or which are consistent with the lab's current direction. And for that for that person, that professor usually, to surrender to the registered reports process and to, to accept the risk that a journal will publish the, the paper regardless of the outcome, is, is un, it's, it's just unthinkable for them because they like to have that control to edit the result before it goes out. This, right. is, a, this is a really, I mean, you know, this is, and this is the issue. How do you get a 65 year old PI to do this and there are ways there are certainly strategies which can work and which I've seen work and one of them is is in fact to point out that 
I mean, I don't agree with this approach. I hate the way science is branded. I hate the way certain labs have to get certain results in order to support their brand. It's not discovery. And in fact, it's, it's coming very close to fraud in my opinion. But if you're dealing in that environment and you have to work with these people to try and convince them to do something new and, and better, the approach I use is that this format protects you from the consequences of results which your rivals would block. So it protects you from stonewalling. There are a lot of a lot of the times these big labs, and they're, they're usually in big famous places, they hmm. have enemies. They have rivals in other labs which always get a different result in the same kind of study. And so you'll have one lab which gets one result and another lab which gets another result. And they never collaborate because that would reveal the truth. Because <laughs> the main thing is, you know, making sure that they both get good stories and so on. This is very, very cynical, by the way. But that's, you know, and I'm oversimplifying, but that's the basic picture. But um, they never collaborate. So you've got this kind of, you've got this competitive culture. And it's competitive at the level of method and idea. But fundamentally, it's competitive at the level of result. And the way to work with these people is to say that registered reports disarm your opponents. So if there's a lab over in the US which, uh, who, with a PI who I hate, there isn't, but just suppose there is. Um, I'm sure there's some that hate me, but you know, that's a different story altogether. But um, <laughs> just suppose there's that lab over there and uh, they keep blocking publication of my work because they disagree with my results. A registered report is an antidote to that because when I submit my protocol to a journal, I can go to Nature Human Behavior with my protocol. No doubt that if my work is close enough and they're famous enough, they'll get to review it and they'll have to find something wrong with my design. They can't reject based on the results. The, the registered reports review process disarms reviewers from outcome-based decision-making. So mm. at that point, I've, I've actually gained something enormously powerful. If, if I truly believe as, as a professor, as an esteemed professor in my field, that I am right and that the truth is on my side, I have nothing to fear from a registered report. It, all it can do is disarm my opponents. So that's the argument I try to make with, with senior researchers. And I try to, when I'm talking to early career researchers, I say to them, take this argument you know, back to your PI sit down with them and explain these, this, these issues to them. I, I don't know how often they really do this because it's kind of a, I don't know, you're kind, of, you're kind of going and talking to your parents and telling them about things that they probably think you ought not to know about. But um, I don't really know how successful they are, but I, I have seen it work on occasion. But this is one of the big barriers we face with this format is it, it's not a science problem, it's a person problem and it's particularly... It's a an established problem yeah indeed it's an established um, older person problem i can th i can think of a scenario where that would work really well if you have if you have one particular if you have one particular result or outcome that you really need to get into print if you have one thing that you know is going to be obstructed or problematic to someone um if you if you know that something's deliberately contentious and uh, I, I think people have this idea about the review process now as much as we talk about blind review or open review or um, the, the thing where you attach the reviews of the paper and they follow it around like a lost dog um, none of them none of them are particularly capable of mitigating sophisticated fuckery it is very very easy to deploy any number of arguments that are motivated, that sound plausible, that have a uh, a particular kind of uh, a particular kind of reasonableness to them, that are utterly destructive to just about anything. So, being motivated to produce a result is one thing. Being motivated to argue against it has it, it's in in many ways it's even easier because no one needs no one needs to check your shit. You just you can just claim that it doesn't it doesn't fit a series of existing predictions, or it uh it it, it has it contains internal contradictions, or that everything should have been done differently in the first place. Now you can you can push back like a mad bastard against that if you're pre-registering the method. Yes. It's, an, yeah. it's actually, it's very powerful. It's a very powerful tool against that kind of, um, that kind of bias. Uh, because we see it, you know, we, 
You know, one of the things I've learned editing registered reports, and I've edited about 80 of them now, is that Oof. there's a huge amount of bias in the peer review process, which goes unseen with standard papers. And the way I know this is that every so often, a registered report comes in, which goes through an in-depth stage one review process and is accepted in the end. And then when the results come back, one of the original reviewers will look at it again. And because they don't like the result, they start re-litigating the methods. <laughs> it do, it's not common, but it does happen. And what it tells me is that if, they get, if they're doing this with registered reports where they explicitly know they have no chance, this must be rife with standard reviewing. With standard reviewing, what I think happens is that if you're reviewing a paper whose results you disagree with or which go against your theory or which you just, they just piss you off, you, you don't attack the results because that makes you look like a crap scientist. You, what, you go to town on the method. And because all methods are fallible, you find those flaws like, like they're going out of style. And you find them, you isolate them, you pinpoint them. Your review is all about methodological flaws and that paper is dead. And yeah. this is the kind of goalpost shifting which is hidden with standard review, which is impossible with a registered report because it's simply transparent. I know what that reviewer agreed to at stage one and I know what they're saying at stage two and I can separate the two and I can say, moreover, um, I'm sorry, but you know, whilst we value your opinion as an expert reviewer, we valued your opinion as an expert reviewer at stage one as well, where you said this was okay. So <laughs> your, your future self doesn't overrule your past self. Yeah. It, it, it's, so, it's so crystal clear that this is the way to go uh, when it comes to having a format within, within journals. But how do we actually convince more journals to take this up as an option? Oh, I thought you're doing pretty well with that, right? Every time I turn around, just like the, the, the is it eighty now? 80, it's eighty nine. Of- it's eighty nine as of today. Um, there was a, a new one joined yesterday. Uh, it's it's growing steadily. I would like it to see grow faster. I don't have a, a rate in mind, except that I want everything now. Um, but I can relate to that. I'm just I'm just annoyed. Like it's for me when you discover something which you think is common sense, and which, to be honest, anyone with common sense agrees is common sense then it annoys you that it's not common everywhere you look. It's not everywhere, you know. But uh, So there's, a, there's an element of frustration that, that comes with watching it climb at any rate. But I'm, with, that, with that aside, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the rate that it's growing. I think to get journals to take it on board, you have to do two things. First of all, you have to convince them there is a problem to solve. If they don't think that there's a problem with reproducibility in science and the reliability of the results that are published in their particular field, very little chance they will be interested in this because this is this is a cure for a disease they don't think they have right so if you can't get past first base you know that's it now not many there are some journals i've talked to which which have this attitude they're usually very stuffy very conservative very old editors who who have this kind of very antiquated approach to science that's not common um, more often you get past that stage and then they're like, okay, then they just throw all the obstacles in, in, in the way about, you know, this doesn't apply to all of the papers in our journal. Um, uh, this, this might hamper exploratory science. Um, this would reduce our impact factor. Uh, our software system can't handle two stages uh, of peer review. <laughs> I mean, you know... It's curating because it, it's as though they think that you're proposing or registered reports is the only way which, when exactly. that's just one format, it's just—it's mad. It's absolute madness. Well, you yeah, know, how are you gonna? How are you gonna? How are you gonna pre-register a commentary or a response <laughs> or a, like a, a narrative review? How do you? Uh, I mean, I, I guess you could pre-register. A you pre-register meta- a meta-analysis, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Meta-analysis yeah, and can I, be and and is pre-registered definitely. That would that would be. Uh, that would be an ideal scenario, actually. I think. Um, I think all. I think all. I think all meta analyses should be pre pre registered because they are so much more prone to to hacking, p hacking, and questionable research practices um, than uh, than empirical research. So the fact that we don't see this more often and it's so much easier to actually do um, to, to to do this, and there are so many things in place, and the fact that it's not done is just nuts. Well, that's right. For- yeah, and in fact, um, Cochrane. The Cochrane Reviews, which were one of the... Basically, they adopted registered reports a long time ago, long before this format became known in empirical science. Cochrane Reviews follow this model for meta-analysis 
routinely. Mm. Everything is pre-registered from the beginning. I, I, I'm a bit in love with Cochrane. I think Cochrane are, are kind of, um, you know, they are, they are like 100 years ahead of everybody else when it comes to understanding the interaction, this kind of strange and wonderful and bizarre and dangerous interaction between human nature and science. They understand that if you're trying to understand reality, you have to take the human factor as much out of the equation as possible. When, when, mm. you're in that process, when you're at that point in time where you need to make a decision, should we do this or this or this? That's when you need to know what the truth is. And so their, their whole process to doing reviews is, is very much along those lines. They, they pre-register their, their meta-analyses and they publish them regardless of the outcome. And they've been doing that, that for years. Um, and so the, you know, if you go to our registered reports page, you'll find them listed there. Um, and mm. I, I think, you know, I, I gave a talk um, earlier this month in London where I presented um, this kind of open science pyramid where at the very top really ought to be pre-registered meta-analyses. And I would go one step further from even from Cochrane and say that the very top, the star on the Christmas tree here is pre-registered meta-analyses of registered reports. So you're actually controlling the bias in the summaries of the unbiased studies. You're, it's like squeezing the last bit of kind of oil out of the rag. Damn. Uh, are there enough that that is available to be done yet? No. Well, yes. Uh, no, in a broad sense. Yes, in a very specific sense that there's a journal called Comprehensive Results in Social Psychology, um, edited by Kai Jonas and uh, Joe Cesario, which um, last year published a bunch of papers on power posing. And um, mm. yes, thumbs up for power posing. <laughs> Yay, power posing. Um, and... Uh, this was a series of registered reports which basically showed that power posing is nonsense. But at the very end, there was a meta-analysis uh, of those registered reports by E.J. Wagamakas and colleagues, uh, which summarized the results from each of the individual studies. And what they showed was very interesting. They showed that, um, that uh, uh, even though each individual study showed no effective power posing on so-called felt power. So how powerful um, the participants felt after standing in these kind of poses. Um, when you meta-analyze these registered reports and the confirmatory analyses in them at the very end, there was a very, very small effect. Um, it doesn't actually show that power posing means anything because there are so many other confounds that could, have, that could produce that result that it's almost a meaningless outcome. But it shows you the power of the pre-registered meta-analysis of registered reports, which is that even when an individual unit that's published as a registered report is too small to provide a definitive answer on its own, a meta-analysis of those unbiased individual units can reveal information that across the aggregate. So I think as time goes on, and 10, 20, 25 years from now, if we, you know, we're all old and gray and I'm even bolder than I am now, we do this again, hopefully Already great. we're going to find... We're going to find that this format has helped create a bedrock of knowledge we can trust and rely on. What's something over the past year or two that you've changed your mind about? This is a really good question for a scientist because ideally we should be changing our mind all the time based on the evidence. And I was thinking, I was reflecting on this because obviously you told me you were going to ask me this before the interview. And I, and I, and I was thinking, actually, I don't change my mind often enough. And I had a colleague, Marcus Manafo, I was at a train station with him once drinking a beer and he said to me, when's the last time you changed your mind about anything? And I felt a bit sheepish. But I actually, um, there are a few things which come to mind. One of them, so we haven't touched on this at all in this interview, but I have this whole line of research on, on the way science is represented in the media. And um, one of our most remarkable findings, so we do research on the role of press releases in particular in influencing mm. science news. And one of the most surprising things that I've changed my mind about in the last couple of years is that I always assumed that if a press release issued by a university about a particular piece of scientific research was hyped up the wazoo and really made a big song and dance about something, that it would definitely get more press. And I also assumed that if the scientists involved in the study um, 
introduced an awful lot of kind of warnings and caveats about the limitations and, and, and made it clear as to why a particular piece of research shouldn't be interpreted in a certain way and so on. I always assumed that would be kind of like, you know, pouring cold water on journalists and they wouldn't cover it. Sure. But actually, the research we've done challenges both of those assumptions that, in fact, there's no discernible relationship between hype in press releases or caveats in press releases and uptake in news. And that's been something that has taken me some time to come to terms with that, that, um, that there's this kind of independent break um, between, between public relations of science and actual science journalism. And I shouldn't hmm. be surprised because when I talk to journalists about this, they say to me, yeah, yeah, I get 250 press releases in my email a day and I detect the bullshit and I screen it out. So in wow. a sense, you know, perhaps the answer was staring at us in the face all along. But still, it's a powerful, um, it's a powerful premise to kind of overcome. We'll definitely have to link to that work on the uh, in the show notes. Yes. Yeah, because it, it, it totally goes against your preconceptions. That you, you think you have to hop the stuff up. You have to, you know, uh, not include these caveats. But uh, yeah, that's, it doesn't uh, work. That's super it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't have any effect whatsoever. Well, the press releases um, definitely have a strong influence on news, but the hype within them, perhaps less so. Damn, wow. I, I always assumed it was. Uh, I mean, I've I've done a few. I did a few press releases uh, as a PhD student, and I got to see how the sausage was made. It was uh, it was good fun. Um, yeah, it's uh, you know. Can I say this? Are you out of your fucking mind, lady? No, you can't say that. Um, a lot of that occurred, but the the interesting part for me was having it directly reported and then kind of having the Chinese whispers effect where someone had read the other articles and wanted to jump on it as well. And eventually it got a, the d details that were totally crucial eventually get boiled out. So I'd always assumed that was more of a problem, but you know, if that result holds up, it's more like the, the, the only problem. Mm. I mean, you, you probably still shouldn't overhype stuff to start with, but <laughs> well, you shouldn't. Because, Damn. you know, if you, what, what we know is that, you know, the content of science news is strongly based upon press releases. Press releases have too strong an influence. Um, you know, we like to think we have an independent press that, that is important for democracy. But in many cases, unfortunately, in science and health news, we have, a, we have an overworked, under-resourced press, which basically regurgitates public relations material. This is a deep, deep challenge for society. It's an also, in a very cynical way, an opportunity for academia. If you want to get your, your science into the press, you know, you become very good at writing press releases that sound like news articles. You have quotes from independent researchers in there. You do the journalist's work for you, and there's a good chance all of that called. will appear in the news. It's called journalism, not journalism. It's a, it's a, a term coined by somebody whose name escapes me now, but it's you know, this idea that this is this churn of of information that comes straight from public relations material. Um, I do a lot of work on this because I think it's, it's, it's the other side of reproducibility. It, the challenge in improving science doesn't end when we publish our papers in journals. It carries on right to the point that the, you know, that the person on Gogglebox watching this on the BBC News is interpreting the outcomes. That's the point in time that we need to be focusing on all that entire chain right from beginning to end absolutely now for our second question uh what is your favorite failure or in other words how has a failure set you up for future success so back in 2013 i submitted what i was convinced was the best goddamn grant application i'd ever come to in my life like it was it was the bee's knees. It was the culmination of everything I'd done up to that point. And even now I read it and I think that's pretty fucking good. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a good piece mm. of grant writing. So I sent it off to the Wellcome Trust and hopeful that I could um, at least get to interview and razzle dazzle them. Um, <laughs> and I got bounced at the first hurdle. I got, a, I got one of those thank you but piss off letters saying, um, it's just, you know, we, we looked at this application. It wasn't strong enough. Um, <coughs> thanks for trying. Um, go away. And actually, it wasn't actually, you know, worded rudely like that. The Wellcome Trust, to their credit, are tremendously engaging and, 
and they they talk to you about why and so on and so forth but i was pretty pissed off like i, I got this letter and i felt like who would who, who you know who had looked at this and had they even read it and it wasn't fair and so on anyway i for about 24 hours i was pissed off and then i i actually wrote a little blog post about it because i realized that, the, that there was a positive side to all this which is that this is just what happens in science you get rejected an awful lot you know failure is part of the job you know you ask me what my favorite failure is i can tell you the last week you know i can it's it's a daily it's a daily occurrence something doesn't work something doesn't succeed particularly with registered reports you know it's an up and down process what the public sees is only the successes pretty much but behind the scenes there's an awful lot of toing and froing and a lot of failure um but you know, I think you have to take this on the chin, you have to learn from it. And so I took that experience from the Wellcome Trust and they said to me it was over ambitious and they said to me um, that you need to you need to reduce the project down and break it down. And I just said, no, fuck it. And I just sent the thing to the, the ERC and it got funded the next time. So I think you have to, you have to know how to kind of navigate that process of failure. You have to, you have to, not take it personally, although it, it feels personal, it is personal in a way, you have to learn from it. So I mean, that was the one example that came to mind for me. Um, mostly because of my pig-headedness, I didn't follow their advice at all. And I just, actually I went further in the opposite direction, I made it more ambitious. And the ERC, because they like to fund high risk, crazy stuff, they said, yeah, we're all right, we'll fund you. Um, thanks to Brexit, <laughs> that might be the last time I ever see ERC in my CV, but yes yeah yeah let's not you told me you told me not to bring up the b word uh, um his, it's tough his to original bring up the b word his his original threat was that he just say fuck for 45 minutes and not 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 any other words just in a variety of timbres and lengths um i have i have a short question for you as well that I, you're not prepared for that we didn't pre-send you are you ready fire What's Wales like? Wales is wet. It's the wettest oh, place I've ever lived. It rains all the time. I think it rains 300 days a year here. Um, oh, God, the people man. are charming and very friendly. It's nothing like London, which is full of arseholes. Um, it's a great place, generally speaking. It did vote for Brexit, which bemuses me. Um, but Wales is... I think Wales is a fascinating little corner of the UK because it's got its own sense of independence and, and national pride. But of course, it's also intimately linked to the rest of the country. I like yeah. it. I like it, and it's got some. It's got, I think, some of the most beautiful untouched natural scenery in the UK. And it's hard to find that in the UK because there's so many bloody people. Well, um, yes, they've they've gone and touched everything, haven't they? Well, everything's been touched, <laughs> but there are parts of Wales which just feel utterly unspoiled and gorgeous. Good answer. Yeah, I've always, I've, I've never, I've never managed to go. Either being in the the British Isles a few times, it just sort of, it hasn't come up. Well, next time you're out here, let me know, and I'll take you on a tour of Welsh castles because they are absolutely stunning. We'll go down to the yes. Um, oh yes, yes. We'll go down to Pembroke. I love a good we'll castle. Take a, yeah, it's going to be amazing. Come on, come on down. Right on. And by the way, Welsh whiskey is the finest. It is absolutely extraordinary. Really. God damn! Ah, oh, that would that would be a difficult find here. Uh, sorry, I'll get some brands off you when we're not recording. Um, <laughs> how about it, Dan? Sounds good. Well, Chris Chambers, thanks for joining us on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Chris Chambers for joining us on Everything Hurts. If you haven't already, make sure you check out Chris's new book, The Seven Deadly Sins of Psychology. We'll be back with a new episode of Everything Hurts very soon.